Nuclear-powered subs are apparently on their way to Australia as part of a $268 billion, probably more, deal with the US and the UK, which involves purchasing at least three second-hand subs in the 2030s. But after the fanfare of those announcements, experts have started to raise questions, including whether Australia has the skilled workforce and know-how to take on such a massive project. After all, the words nuclear and Australia haven't played nicely for, well, ever. I'm Matthew Aegis, journalist at Cosmos magazine, and on today's Cosmos podcast, I'm joined by Petra Stock. G'day, Petra. Hi, Matt. Petra, one of the things to come out of this announcement is that this project will result in high-level nuclear waste, spent fuel, which Australia has committed to dispose of. Now, to date, Australia only has low and intermediate-grade material, right? Yeah, that's right. And actually, after three decades, we still haven't even resolved where we're putting the lower-level stuff either. There's a site in Outback South Australia that's been flagged, but traditional owners there, the Bangala people, they're not happy about it. I think they're mounting a legal challenge against, against it right now, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And now we have this whole new question about where the high-level radioactive waste that the AUKUS project creates will go. And in the usual way, we're seeing the premiers of Victoria and Western Australia make some public comments suggesting they think it should go in South Australia. Their argument comes back, though, to the point that SA is going to reap the rewards of jobs and economic development from the proposal, though. But I suppose that doesn't necessarily mean there's a spot within its boundaries that is the best place for a high-level waste storage facility. So surely you'd rather safety and effectiveness over point scoring. How much time is going to be required before we need to make a decision? Well, the first radioactive waste we're going to have to manage is more of the low and intermediate level stuff that comes from routine operations and maintenance of these submarines. And that will be in around 10 years' time. The high-level waste comes when we decommission those first three Virginia-class submarines around 2060. But we know from AUKUS materials that the process for choosing a site will actually kick off this year. Hmm. Well, would you rather have nuclear-powered subs or would you rather not have to worry about where spent high-level waste is going to go? I guess for some people, there's going to be a very easy answer to that question. Either way, it's either going to be, yes, we want the subs or actually we don't want the subs because we don't want to have to get rid of the waste. But in the middle, there's probably going to be people that can see the merits of both of those arguments. So we should probably firstly try and get to the bottom of what that high level waste actually means and what it takes to store it. Yeah, we definitely need more information. So now's a good time to introduce Nigel Marks, an associate professor at Curtin University who has extensive experience in nuclear science and materials, and also Tony Irwin, an engineer who specialises in nuclear and is an honorary associate professor at ANU. So, Nigel, what do we actually know about the type of waste these nuclear submarines might be producing? We've heard terms like high-level What does that actually mean? So high-level waste is the most radioactive type of uh, radioactive waste we have. So there's three types. Low-level, which is like gloves and things in hospitals. 
uh, intermediate level, which is kind of you know, of some concern, but doesn't require um, you know, high technology. And then the highest level waste is the kind of stuff that gets produced by a nuclear reactor. And that's where people have to be most on their game and, and think about what's going to happen for a very long period of time. But Tony, when are we expecting to have to deal with radioactive waste coming off these nuclear-powered subs? So the first of our own Virginia class will be in 2033. So that's the date that we must start managing all this radioactive waste. That's 10 years away. But the first waste we have to manage is, is low-level waste. So this is waste from routine operations and, and maintenance. So this is things like slightly contaminated clothing, gloves, cleaning, um, some filters and resins and that sort of thing. So we're talking about 2063, earliest time that we'd have to start managing used fuel. Now, the used fuel, when it comes out of the reactor, is, is high-level waste. And the difference between intermediate-level waste and high-level waste is the high-level waste produces radioactivity and heat. And the normal def definition is it produces more than two kilowatts per meter cubed of heat. Now, because it's radioactive and producing heat, initially, practically everybody puts into, to, into a cooling pond because the water provides cooling and shielding. So the fuel, you defuel the reactor, you defuel the submarine, you probably put it into a, a cooling pond. After it's cooled down for a while, so you better do a calculation to see how much heat there is in it and whether you can transport it or not. You've basically got four options to manage it. So the first one is you put it in a dry cask. So you take it out of the wet pond and put it in a dry cask. So most um, civil nuclear fuel, say in the US and a lot in Europe, goes into a dry cask. So this is a, an intermediate storage, and you can leave it in here for 100 years if you want to. The second option is you send the fuel for reprocessing. For instance, all the fuel from the Opal Research Reactor at Lucas Heights goes to France, reprocessed, and we get back intermediate level waste. So the reprocessing removes the uranium and plutonium and sort of leaves you with fission products and and minor actinides. So it reduces the whole of the radioactivity. It reduces the time you have to, to manage it. So the, the third option is disposal. So we're not going to reprocess. We dispose of a whole fuel assembly. So that goes into a, a deep geological facility. So this typically 500 meters underground. This one being um, this built in Finland and, and Sweden, uh, France are, are, are building theirs. So it's deep underground and that, that keeps it safe for a long while. So we could have one of those and the South Australian Royal Commission looked in detail at that and said, yes, you know, we, we could do this. And the last option is uh, fuel for a fast neutron reactor. So this, this sort of used fuel from a, a 
this is a pressurized water type of reactor, can be used for fuel for the next generation reactors. So we may well want to save it because we're talking about 2060s and by then there'll almost certainly be a lot of fast neutron reactors. So we might want to save it and, and use it as, as fuel for those. So we know that Australia has committed to dispose of the high-level waste. Nigel, what sorts of things do we need to think about to safely dispose of nuclear waste and spent fuel like this? So there's, there's really two sides. So from a scientific point of view, it's, uh, it's relatively straightforward to deal with it. There's a lot of things that are known both from nature and also from technology for dealing with these things uh, for long periods of time. So on the nature side, there's a natural reactor that ran in Africa about 3 billion years ago, and the radioactive waste there moved uh, a couple of metres in a billion years. So that's a solid data point. That's what actually happens in real life. And there's also a lot of good technology uh, to deal with it um, around the world, but especially in Australia. Hansto developed something called SINROC, which is like a synthetic rock, which takes lessons from nature for storing radioactive material, and, that, and that's one of many options. Uh, of, of good approaches. But the real problem with radioactive waste is um, is social and political. So the big lessons there are the Scandinavians. So Finland and Sweden have actually done something. They're very inclusive societies. But the great mistake that Australia can make is for a government body to, uh, to go and make a decision on where it should go, make an announcement, uh, and then defend it, and then eventually abandon it. That pattern has happened over and over, both here and around the world. So I've heard someone uh, wiser than me on this describe it as the DAD process, when it's uh, decide, uh, announce, defend, and then eventually DAD becomes data. So th that's the, the biggest thing. So I, I heard that there was talk of um, putting it on defence land. Straight away, you can imagine everyone jumping up and down. So I think the best system is what the Scandinavians did where they had a tender process where they, uh, they said what type of radio, what type of geological site they were looking for, uh, and then communities actually bid for it. Um, so that's the complete opposite way. Um, and in the case of uh, one of those two countries, uh, the details slips my mind, but we could look it up, um, the one who lost out actually got compensated because they missed out on the economic benefit. So that's, that's the Scandinavian way. And we could do a, we basically should copy what they did. We shouldn't be, you can't impose these things on an area. You have, it has to be somewhere where things, yeah, I'd, I wouldn't mind storing this stuff. We know a lot about, I don't know, rocks and mining, and we're not afraid of these things. And yeah, sure, we'll take, you know, $100 million or $200 million or whatever it is and, and look after it. So there's, there's a lot known. It's essentially a social problem. That's the, that's why, we, and the other problem with radioactive material is that it's it's too easy to do nothing. Ah, I hadn't really thought about the issue of not deciding, but I guess we know that the UK and the US, even they haven't really resolved what to do with their high-level waste. I, it, sit, it sits at the reactor facilities in ponds, and it's like I said, the amount, the actual physical volume isn't that great, and so they have ponds and it just sits there and... You have a have a few locked gates and some cameras and uh, and nothing happens and that and that's why you know, the US expression is to kick the can down the road. 
uh, and they just keep announcing reviews and then maybe you could do this or maybe you could do that or maybe you could reprocess it or maybe you could put it in deep ge geological storage or maybe you could transform it into something else. But the, the doing nothing option is, is so attractive to a, a government. And that's why the, the Scandinavians are so impressive because, first of all, they get the, their society on board um, and then second, they actually get on with it. Like in the case of the Swedish one, the repository is only 120 k's from Stockholm. So it's not like it's it's out in the back box. Like Sweden's a massive country, runs a huge distance up to the Arctic Circle. Um, but they've just gone and found some good rocks and they'll dig a big hole and they know what they're doing and they'll put it in there. Petra, I never thought of myself as a NIMBY, you know, a not in my backyard type of guy. But I've got to say that the idea of having high level radioactive waste near me doesn't have a lot of appeal. And having seen how the debate has gone in my home state of South Australia for many years, I know there is, at least historically, much reluctance in the community. SA is one place that has quite seriously considered nuclear waste in the past. Back in 2015 and 2016, the state government established the Nuclear Fuel Cycle Royal Commission, which found the state could dispose of used nuclear fuel safely. But in that case, native title holders and a citizen's jury both said, no thanks. Clearly, it's very important, but I guess the question I have is, what is the best practice for working out whether a community, whether it's local, as in the people that are going to live where this might be kept, but also broadly, say, an entire state, is up for keeping high-level waste? Let's bring in Professor Sarah Bice. She's the director of ANU's Institute for Infrastructure in Society. Sarah, according to the AUKUS information, the process for choosing a high-level nuclear waste disposal site will include engagement with community and Indigenous groups and consider wider social licence and economic implications. Let's start with social licence. What does that actually mean and why is it important? Thanks, Petra. That's a great question. Social license to operate in the most general sense is the level of acceptance of a policy or a project within a defined community. So here we have quite a big and diverse community because we are talking about the Australian public. And if we open up the nuclear question, we're potentially talking about a much larger international public. And what we're looking at when we're talking about a social license is what is the current level of acceptance of the issue at hand? And also, what processes, relationships, engagements, policies, or regulations would need to be put in place if the desire were to proceed with that particular policy or project? One of the potential possibilities that's come up in public discussions has been Outback South Australia. But we do know that the state went through quite a detailed process to look at the potential for high-level nuclear waste. They had the Royal Commission, they had extensive public engagement and a citizen jury. And in that case, native title groups and the majority of the citizen jury also rejected the idea. Having gone through that process, are there any implications of kind of reopening an issue where you've already done such extensive consultation, like what happened in South Australia? 
I think absolutely, and I appreciate the question because what it suggests is that uh, those processes are perhaps temporary. It suggests for South Australians, if they are faced with this discussion again, um, that perhaps those opinions are no longer relevant. It's wonderful that that particular process, and it is one of the more robust processes we've seen across the country around nuclear issues, it involved deliberative democratic methods. Uh, it involved inquiry to the level of a royal commission, and ultimately it did involve Indigenous concerns through native title. Now, reopening that, particularly in South Australia, is in some ways saying to the public, well, you said that before, but now we're going to put that to one side and start over. And it also suggests that the expectation then is you might get a different outcome. And I think that's a bit disingenuous and it undermines the thing that we look for most when we talk about a social license, which is trust. That is absolutely fundamental to building a social license. And we often get to trust through something called procedural fairness. And that is the public's perception of the, as the name suggests, fairness of the process that was used to read the decision. And so if the public now feels, particularly in South Australia and those who were involved in the original discussion around nuclear in the state, that these processes were not somehow genuine, that they're now being brought into question and potentially undermined, then that is a huge barrier to building the trust necessary for such a controversial engagement. Sarah, is there anything you think that's important to add? Just thinking about this pretty major issue of AUKUS and what Australia will need to plan for in the coming years and decades? I think what's critical is that people people are worried. This is a very, very large investment. It feels like it's something that is out of the hands of the Australian public, that it's a decision that's made, a very large decision that's been made for people and on behalf of people without a lot of public discussion or consultation, and yet the consequences of the initiative um, are incredibly complex and very controversial. And where we have fear, where we see communities who feel like they are lacking control, these are the places where we're also most likely to see opposition and that's not to say that opposition is a bad thing. It can be a really important thing. So can protest. Uh, but the conditions through which this particular initiative has gone forward are exactly the types of conditions that lead to major community distrust and major opposition. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting space to watch. And it sounds like we'll be watching it for quite some time to come. Let's bring in some people who have actually seen this play out from a community perspective. Amy Rust is a Gugatha woman from West Coast, South Australia, who heads up communications and engagement at the First People's Assembly of Victoria, but has previously worked for ministers in both Canberra and South Australia. And Amy, I guess one thing that came up from the South Australian Royal Commission into the nuclear fuel cycle was that need to engage First Nations across the country. We've seen the suggestion by the Federal Defence Minister when it comes to AUKUS that high-level nuclear waste management will occur either on existing defence land or future defence land. Does that change anything about the way that First Nations people should be consulted? Yeah, it, do it doesn't change anything. Um, every 
part of this country, no matter where you are, is Aboriginal land. It's it's unceded land, um, and engagement should should occur. <clears throat> um, and often the issue that comes up most is that there's a lack of respect and sacred sta- sacred sites aren't looked after. Um, and just because it's a defence defence land now, it doesn't mean that there's not sacred sites on that particular parcel of land. And often uh, if due respect is given and, and adequate consultation, you know, it can be marked out on, on the area. You know, these, these are particular sites where um, no activity should occur because it would damage a sacred site. And so many projects can just, you know, go around that. Um, but it all comes back to that consultation and engagement at the beginning. What does a good engagement process look like then? And if I was the, let's say, government's going to be running this gauntlet in the first instance as opposed to a mining company or a nuclear company, that they should put an expression of interest out, ask ask the country, ask traditional owners who might be interested in having this conversation with government, you know, completely flip it and put it on its head and, and start there. It's a bit like uh, knocking on people's doors and asking them to endorse it after the government have already run their multi-million dollar, uh, you know, economic prosperity, you know, weighing it up, see if it works for them and then have a look at the social contract and what is the right thing to do by traditional owners. If you do it the other way around, I'm sure we'd save a lot of time and money and very well may have um, multiple Aboriginal groups across the country say, hey, we're happy to have that conversation. Come talk to us about it. What does it mean? With all the points that you've raised, it occurs to me that AUKUS has come into the public arena at the same time as the Bangla people taking the federal government to court over an intermediate waste facility on their country and this overarching discussion across the country around a voice to parliament and treaty processes, which you yourself are working on. It's all these things at once. Would structures like a voice be beneficial in giving First Nations a greater say on activities like nuclear waste storage? Mm. Well, I'm a big um, supporter of the the move for a federal voice to parliament. Um, I think in every metric that you could look at, the intermediate waste facility in Kimber has failed um, to respect the wishes of traditional owners, <clears throat> the Bangla people there. Um, you don't see the government being taken to court about this sort of thing if, if they've listened to the wishes um, of the traditional owners there. So I think if there was a, a First Nations voice to parliament that this sort of thing couldn't have progressed to the stage that it has. Um, if the government does intend to have the voice as not a tokenistic voice, as they say they do, and something that is meaning forward, something that would be listened to. Um, and then you go a step further. Obviously, treaties is uh, the biggest piece of unfinished business that this country has with with Aboriginal people. And if there were treaties in place, again, you wouldn't wouldn't be able to and shouldn't be able to progress something like a nuclear waste facility um on Aboriginal land without um the consent of Aboriginal people. And that's the I guess credit to the former Premier in South Australia, Jay Weatherall, when uh there was the Royal Commission about nuclear waste then and he said even if there was bipartisan support, even if there was 
an economically viable model, even if there was a referendum of South Australian people who who wanted this, um, Aboriginal people would have the right of veto on their land. And I think that is the right way to go about it. Except I would ask the Aboriginal people at the start so you don't go through all that pain and trauma for, for something that may not eventuate. But um, at the end of the day, the, the, the Premier did respect um, traditional owners in that way. And I guess just lastly then, what would you say to a person in terms of, of what they should take away from how First Nations should be engaged across the country? I would tell a person that they need to educate the community, um, explain the, the science behind it, explain the impact to country, explain what the process will be, how they'll be involved, what power they'll still have to be able to access their country if a nuclear waste facility was put there, which is also something that's often overlooked. People think they can build something and Aboriginal people will give up their land and not need to access it for traditional um, benefits, which, of course, many still do. Uh, And just start at the beginning. Have that conversation with Aboriginal groups and invite them along the journey, not after you've already made all your decisions. It's insincere and it's not a genuine approach to engaging with Aboriginal people. It's a hot-button issue, isn't it, Petra? And it almost seems as though the technical side of things is the simplest part, at least when you compare it to working out who is actually open to hosting such a facility. I mean, for sure, and it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I guess now we know from some of the experts we've spoken to how other countries have gone about choosing or not choosing a nuclear waste site. I'll be interested to see how the federal government and defence manages this process. And um, I guess we'll have to wait and see how it all pans out. Well, Petra, I know that you've been following this issue very closely over a long period of time. I have as well. And we'll continue to follow it over the weeks and months to come at Cosmos magazine. It was great to speak to you today. See you next time, Matt. The Cosmos podcast is produced by the Royal Institution of Australia in Adelaide on Ghana country. The Royal Institution of Australia is a not-for-profit whose mission is to communicate science widely as the key to a better world. We do this through our stories, which are turned into educational resources, teaching the scientists of tomorrow about the science of today in classrooms across Australia. Support us by subscribing to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's premier print science magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, its sister e-publication. Thank you.